You're listening to the Citrus Church Podcast. Now, here's the message. As we gather together today, this is the last week of our our sermon series for January called Habits. Uh, And and this series, my hope was to do a couple things, was to address that that, that feeling that we feel this time of year to change, to to think about things that we want to see different, ways that we want to be different, etc., um, but I also want to do that in a way that recognized that resolutions and, and habits and change and all that stuff can be kind of difficult. If we've done it for any period of time, we know that, that the human life doesn't change easily. It's, it's resilient, which is good. But some of those habits are just hard to kick. So we've been talking about how to make change in our life. And probably really at the core of this, we're talking about how do we become the people that God has called us to be, that God wants us to be. And how do we live into a life that honors God in all the different ways that we can? So to do that, we began the first week by talking about it's important how we set goals for ourselves. And what I mentioned that it was important for us to not just think about what do we want to do, but who do we want to become? Who do we want to become? And then last week I talked about how things like uh, habits and cues can help us, sorry, uh, uh, cues and triggers can help us to remember, oh, that's right, I wanted to do something different at this moment in my day. And so uh, whether that was setting a journal next to where you brew your cup of coffee, so you remember you want to write a gratitude journal, or um, putting things in our path to help us to stop and remember, oh, that's right, I wanted to do something different here. Uh, And so this week, I really want to just get down to, to probably the core question at this point, which is how do we make these habits stick? Because if you've been trying something since January 1, The reality is is that very soon, just by mathematical calculations, these habits will begin to slide and to go down. So today I really want to get at that idea of how do we make habits that sustain? How do we make habits that sustain? And and to do that, I want to continue to look at the book of Daniel, which I have just thoroughly enjoyed digging into. And in Daniel, we see the experiences of how how we build habits and how those impacted Daniel and how they impacted the nation that he was in exile in at that period of time. And so this week, I want to go back to the beginning uh, beginning in Daniel 2 and talk about some dreams. Uh, now, to set the stage, King Nebuchadnezzar was the king at this time. And for Daniel, Daniel had found uh, favor along with a couple of his friends. And so just to kind of give you a brief historical recap, uh, the Israelites were in uh, their promised land, but they had been captured and overtaken, and they'd been taken away into um, the land of Babylon and under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar, and so they were in a period of exile. And through God's favor and, and divine intervention, we see that Daniel and his friends are now a part of the court and a part of the royal advisors. And so what we find here is that Daniel is, is promoted— to this role, in part because he is seen as someone who has wisdom and understanding. (laughs) The king didn't really care whether uh, Daniel and his friends were from his land or not. This was someone who had wisdom and understanding and was helpful to the king and the decisions that the king had to make. So we see that already Daniel has some things going for him. But the other thing that we see is that Daniel is, is sharper and smarter than some of the other advisors that King Nebuchadnezzar has around him. In particular, the ones who would interpret the dreams of the king. 
so this, this was a big thing. The, the land of Babylon was known for these individuals called Chaldeans. We'll get into them in just a minute. But they were basically professional dream interpreters. And the king kept a lot of those around. I, I mean, I guess I think about some of my dreams sometimes. They don't make a lot of sense, like a giant fish talking to me and includes a lot of pizza. And I don't know what these things mean. And this was a time period where dreams were really understood as guiding guiding lights and guiding points. And so to be able to interpret dreams meant that the king would know what he was supposed to do next. And so what we can see even at this point here, I want to go ahead and read uh, from Daniel chapter 1, verse 19, is that already God is up to something. Already God is up to something. Uh, Take a listen to this. It says, when the king spoke to them, he found no one as good as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azrak. We would see these names changed later. So this would be the same people as Daniel. Um, uh, Wow. Okay, those just left me. Someone help me out here. Meshach. Thank you. I couldn't remember the first one. You know how you you can't remember the first thing in a sequence? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yes. So these names would change a little bit later. It's the same people. So they took their place in the king's service. Whenever the king consulted them about any aspect of wisdom and understanding, He found them head and shoulders above all the dream interpreters and enchanters and in his entire kingdom. And Daniel stayed in the king's service until the first year of King Cyrus, which would be the one down the road afterwards. And so already we see that God is up to something in this time. So continuing the story on, we're going to kind of look at chunks of the story this morning as we go. Looking at Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's rule, he had many dreams. The dreams made him anxious, but he kept sleeping. The king summoned the dream interpreters, enchanters, diviners, and the Chaldeans, these are the professionals on this level, to explain his dreams to him. They came and stood before the king. Then the king said to them, I had a dream and I'm anxious to know its meaning. The Chaldeans answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king! Tell your servants the dream, and we'll explain the meaning. The king answered the Chaldeans, My decisions are final. If you can't tell me the dream and its meaning, you'll be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be turned into trash dumps. (laughs) As we might say, things escalated quickly. right? And so... Let me read the last part of this verse here. It says, but if you do explain the dream and its meaning, you'll receive generous gifts and glorious honor from me. So explain to me the dream as well as its meaning. Now, Babylon is famous for these Chaldeans and those who can interpret dreams, but already there's this tension, right? So the king is anxious about these recurring dreams that are happening over and over and over again, and he knows that they're important and they're significant, but he doesn't understand them. And so he says to them, tell me the meaning. And they say, well, you tell us the dream, we'll tell you the meaning. And very quickly he tells them, if you can't tell me the meaning, your life is over. You're done. Your service is ended. And it's troubling to the king. But I think at some point the king wants to know that this stuff is serious, and I want to make sure that these Chaldeans aren't trying to con me. And if they are who they say they are, then... They shouldn't need to know the dream. They should just be able to interpret it. So I understand this to be a king who is, who is scared and who is nervous and who is anxious and just needs to know the next step and doesn't have time for the games. 
and just needs them to know that if, if you can do this thing, if you can interpret these dreams, please tell me. But obviously, the interpreters are nervous too because they're saying, <laughs> we need a little more information here. Let's keep reading, uh, beginning in verse 7, and see how this begins to, to turn out. So they answered the king again, the king must tell his servants the dream. We will then explain the meaning. The king replied, now I definitely know that you are stalling for time because you see that my decision is final. And if you can't tell me the dream, then your fate is certain. You've conspired to make false and lying speeches before me until the situation changes. Tell me the dream now, then I'll know you can explain its meaning to me. The Chaldeans answered the king, no one on earth can do what the king is asking. No king or ruler, no matter how great, has ever asked such a thing of any dream interpreter, enchanter, or Chaldean. Just to pause a moment here, doesn't this feel like this past year? No one on earth, no king, no ruler has ever seen anything like has happened in the last year. How do you expect us to do this? Hold that point as we continue. What the king is asking is impossible. No one could declare the dream to the king but the gods. Take notice there of the lowercase g, gods, who don't live among mere humans. At this point, the king exploded in a furious rage and ordered that all, the Babylon, that all Babylon's sages be wiped out. So the command went out. The sages were to be killed. Daniel and his friends, who were also a part of that group, though they weren't a part of what had just happened before that. Daniel and his friends, too, were hunted down. They were to be killed as well. So let's pause here for a moment and talk about this. The, the Chaldeans, of course, they have the gift of interpreting dreams, but they didn't have the gift of reading minds. And so they finally, just in their own frustration, respond to the king, nobody can do what you're asking for. You've never asked us to do this before. You always tell us the dream. You always give us the feedback that we need. We can't read your mind. You have to tell us, and then we'll tell you what it means. And so in a lot of ways, these dream interpreters weren't asking for anything that they hadn't had before. But when the game changes and everything becomes different, it becomes much more challenging. And so I want us to, in our mind, begin to draw parallels to these unprecedented circumstances in the Scriptures and the unprecedented circumstances that we are living through right now. And the response by these Chaldeans to say, no one has ever done this, you can't do this, this is impossible. And spare our lives at the same time, please, right? Because this isn't the job that we have. This is going to become important as we continue on down the road. So, of course, they say, and I love this line here, no one can declare the dream to the king but the gods, with a lowercase g who don't live among mere humans, who don't live among mere humans. But Daniel knew something that they didn't know. These Chaldeans who were part of Babylon, who were used to interpreting dreams and used to consulting the gods, didn't understand the God that Daniel knew. And so we can begin to see that as far as Israel goes, that Israel knows something different about God. Israel knows that well, hold on a second, maybe the little g gods don't live among mere humans, but the capital G God, the God we know as Yahweh, lives among humans. And so already up to this point, here's what we know, and here's what Israel would experience kind of in the spectrum of their history. 
is that at this point they've been brought out of Egypt, and in Exodus 25, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, they should make a sanctuary so I can be present among them. So I can be present among them. It would go on a couple chapters later, and God will say, I will make my home among the Israelites to be present among them, and I will be their God. We fast forward into the the role of the prophets, and we find these words in Ezekiel 48. As of today, the name of the city is, the Lord is there. They renamed a city to mean the Lord is there. And then if we fast forward all the way to John 14 in the New Testament, Jesus answers and says, Whoever loves me will keep my word. My Father will love them. And we will come to them and we will make our home with them. And not just God with people, but God in us. Right? The hope that we have. And so we're talking about the big spectrum of history. And though they hadn't seen all of that yet at this point that Daniel is in history, what the Israelites already know is that while their gods may not reside among mere humans, they know the God who is present. Their understanding of who God is is one who walks with them and who lives with and among them and is part of their everyday life. So I hope that you can see at this point that God is using Daniel and his friends to reveal to the interpreters and to the king and to Babylon what they didn't know before. That sure, maybe little g gods don't live among humans, but Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, does. And as I've been reading through the whole book of Daniel, the whole thing is really a testimony to God's ever-expanding grace. And it's the story of a God who is continually extending God's arms further and further to include more and more people in God's love and grace and in good news. And what might surprise us at this point is the reason God extends God's arms to include more and more people is not to to judge more and more people, or in this case, more and more nations and kings. But it's to help these people and this king to see that there is a God present and one that does care. And so the way that this all begins to unfold is actually quite um, unique and quite interesting because the way that these individuals and the king and the Chaldeans will come to understand who this God is that is with them is by Daniel and his friends practicing their, their habits faithfully day in and day out. So I want to look real quick at what what Team Daniel, as I call them, does in response to this news that goes out that they are to be included with the dream interpreters and those who are to be killed. So we'll take a look at uh, Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 14. Then Daniel, with wisdom and sound judgment, responded to Arioch, the king's chief executioner, who had gone out to kill Babylon's sages. He said to Antioch, the king's royal officer, why is the king's command so unreasonable? After Arioch explained the situation to Daniel, Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so he could explain the dream's meaning to him. Then Daniel went to his house, excuse me, and explained the situation to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so that they would ask the God of heaven for help about this mystery. 
in hopes that Daniel and his friends wouldn't die with the rest of Babylon's sages. And so the first thing that Daniel begins to do is he goes and asks for more time. Right, we learned earlier on that Daniel is full of wisdom and understanding. The smartest thing he's done so far is just to show up and say, hey, can I get a little more time? I'd like to kind of try this thing out myself, right, before I'm dead. I mean, at this point, what could be worse for him? So he goes and he asks the king for more time, and in a sense, he was up for a challenge. And what I see at this point, and perhaps you notice too, is that at this point, Daniel doesn't know the dream either. He has no more information about this than the Chaldeans did. He didn't know the dream that hadn't been revealed to him. He didn't have any inclination of what it might be or what God might be up to. He is in the same boat, but the difference is, is that Daniel went and explained the situation to his friends. The response that he had was to go and to gather his friends, his fellow Israelites, who also knew that there's a God who lives among people. And Scripture says, so they would ask the God of heaven about the mystery. And we would change that word ask to pray and see what happens here. So that they would pray to the God in heaven and find out what the mystery is. It struck me that Daniel didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to say. And he didn't know how to save his own life. The one piece that Daniel knew was that Israel had a God that when the people cried out and asked for help, that God answered them. And so Daniel did know that he had direct access to the God of the heavens. But I love this part too. He also knew that he needed someone else to help him on this journey at this particular moment in time. I mean, I guess he could have just gone in by himself and prayed on his own. But for Daniel, he knew that perhaps the most important thing he could do that moment was gather the others with him, his other three friends together, and for them to pray together. Something in Daniel's head says, we need to go in and pray about this together. Daniel gathers his friends to pray with him. And I believe this is powerful for us as we think about habits, because we have defined who God wants us to become We have lined up cues and triggers that will help us to uh, do the next right thing. But we never have to do this alone. Part of starting a new habit is realizing that we have to stop old habits. And old habits, whether good or bad, tend to die hard, right? They, They tend to be ruthless without letting go, without a fight. I think of a friend from Louisiana who says, uh, it's kind of like having a knife fight in a phone booth. No one's walking out unscathed. And that's how bad habits and old habits are. They just don't let us go that easy to form new habits. So when we think about how do we break these old habits and these bad habits so that we can begin to do something different and something that's new, what I see here in the scriptures is that that is best done in community with others. When we're starting something new, there can be a sense of accountability when we're in community with others. Think about King Nebuchadnezzar. It mattered to him who was around him. The first people that he gathered around him in this moment of need was his advisors. And their response to him was, no one can do what you're asking for. No one can do the things that you want. We can't understand these things. They were telling the king it's impossible And I think it's almost impossible for us to live faithfully with the wrong influences around us. 
1 Corinthians tells us to not be deceived because bad company corrupts good character. So, so take stock of those individuals in your ear who are advising you when you're trying to do something that's new or challenging or different. Are they telling you, this is impossible, no one's done this. You, you can't think that way. The world isn't that way. Those are the ones who were in the king's ear. But look at the same time, too, at Daniel. It says that Daniel asked for some more time so he could explain the dream to the king. And his willingness to pursue the impossible with the king, maybe it was just because he wanted to spare his own life, right? We've had worse motivations for getting things done. But now here's someone in the king's ear from the other side that says, I I don't know about the dream, but I'm going to go down this impossible road with you. And I'm going to believe that maybe together we can figure something out. Daniel accepted this crazy plan, and through his faith, helps the king actually move from a place of doubt, inspired by by this group over here. Help him to move from a place of doubt to faith. So in the end, when Daniel does do the impossible, of course, with God's help and revelation, uh, here's what we see in Daniel 2, verse 47. The king declared to Daniel, remember, this is the king speaking, not an Israelite, not a God follower, not a part of that group. No doubt about it, your God is the God of gods, right? And in the passage here, it's got your God is the capital G, you can see it here, is the God of gods, the lowercase one. The Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries because you were able to reveal this mystery. In our terms today, we would say the king came to faith that day and the God of Scripture as we know it. Because Daniel was willing to go along on this crazy journey to trust that God would meet him in the process. So I want to invite you to think about who's in your corner to cheer you on. Because habits become easier when there's a team together. Uh, One of the ways that I've seen this working out in the real world here as we see it um, is, is with Melanie, my wife Melanie. Uh, she has uh, like an Apple Watch, and her and one of her friends are challenging each other. And so they're both challenging each other in their habits to kind of, this is a term I don't know because I don't have an Apple Watch, but like to close your rings. Does anybody else like close rings? Some of y'all know about that. I, I don't know about that. But it's the idea that your Apple Watch will help you to know how many steps have I taken, how many times have I stood up, how much movement, how much activity am I doing. And I know this because they get notifications of each other's workouts. So she'll get a notification when her friend works out. When she works out, her, the other one will get a notification about it. And each week they challenge each other to get the most uh, steps or, or, or activity or those kinds of things. And it's not one of those things where it's like, I'm going to beat her. I'm going to be better than her. Um, the other thing about the Apple Watch is you can like push a button and talk to it and it'll dictate, right, what you want to say to that person. So just around the house, I hear the messages being created and sent out. And it's things like, go ahead and get out there today and do it, right? Or wow, like amazing job you did today. Or, or a text message like, hey, you got this, you can do this. And it's just a testimony to me of how the power of friends and someone who believe in maybe an impossible dream or habit and how the power of friends can help us in terms of accountability when they want us to succeed as much as we want to succeed. 
And when we're not worried about one-upping or in the sense of the Chaldeans kind of sparing their own lives, right? When we are truly invested in seeing our friends, our neighbors, those who we're accountable to, succeeding and becoming the people that God wants us to be. So who else is in your corner and saying, I understand that's who you want to be and that's who God has called you to be and this is how you want to live, and I'm right there behind you. So I want to make sure that you know that I'm in your corner praying you through this. I've mentioned before that we're a United Methodist Church. Uh, And our founder, John Wesley, uh, when he first began his own journey of faith, when he first began kind of making his own faith, was about the time that he was in university. Uh, And he and his brother Charles were students at Oxford University. And they already had in mind this idea that it's impossible for us to be solitary and isolated Christians. Sure, we can be lone rangers in the faith, but it just doesn't work for very long. And so they were forming new habits, and they were trying to embrace their faith and to make it their own, and to, to, in a sense, that rite of passage that we take when you kind of move on from your parents' house and you begin to embrace your own things. And so they wanted to make sure that these new habits of faith would stick. And so they formed this group called the Holy Club. Anybody else? Who else would want to join John Wesley's Holy Club? We might name it different today. But it was a group of young men who were also at Oxford who devoted themselves to a disciplined and a vibrant life of faith together. They would gather daily or weekly for prayer. They'd read scripture. They would discuss Christian books. And they would even share communion together. And they would talk about their goals and the challenges they had that week, where they had felt God was with them, and where they had felt that they'd missed a moment or missed an opportunity. They would even turn this faith outward so it wasn't just about their own spiritual journey. And as a group together, they would go and feed the hungry and bring clothes for the poor and visit those who were sick and those who were in prison. And so how did the other students respond? I mean, at Oxford University, others who were also training to be uh, ministers and preachers. Well, they criticized John and Charles and their band, and they said that their methodical life was, was too rigid and unnecessarily pious, that they were overzealous, and they gave them a name that they felt was derogatory, calling them Methodists, because they were so methodical about their faith. And so the Holy, the Holy Club became the foundation of the new Methodist church and this idea that, that we are better together, that God does have a plan and a purpose for our life, and it's hard for us to achieve that on our own. And this radical insistence that faith is both th- something that is internal but also something that changes the world around us. If all that sounded familiar, it's because that's what we do in what we call small groups or what we call grow groups. Living for Jesus has never been a solo task, and we just simply can't lone ranger it because our faith grows and thrives in community with others. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew 18, For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. And sometimes we think this is like a magic formula, like, okay, we got two people, like, it'd be better, like, and all of a sudden the third person shows up and the Holy Spirit's like, hey, I'm here now. Like, but I wasn't when you just had one. Sometimes we think this is a magic formula. The way I understand this passage is to say that there is a, a sense of a power in community. 
that we need each other to walk this life of faith together. If you've ever had a hard time following Jesus on your own, it's not you. It's just that we weren't designed to go at it alone. And for some of us, there's reasons or, or pasts or hurts or hangups that we have of why we have felt it's better to go alone. But my hope for this church and for our community and for our faith is that we can find those who are going to be in our corner, those who are going to push us towards the plan God has for us, those who will invite us to see the world in ever-expanding ways that include more and more people. So as we reflect this morning, I want to invite you to think, who is your Shadrach, your Meshach, and your Abednego? They probably have different names than that. But who are the people that you could call together as a holy club? You might choose a different name than that. But who are those with whom you can share the habits that you want to build? Who are those who believe that God's best is still out there for you? Who are those who won't tear you down? Who are those who will be there with an encouraging text or a reminder? Those who can help keep you accountable to the things that you know are important. Those who will pray with you and for you. You don't have to have a whole bunch of these people. The, the Holy Club was really only about five people. We can do this in small groups. It's a reminder to us that we really just need two or three, and we can gather together in this way. So I want to encourage you, if, if you, if you have those people, or if you have people in mind, to begin to think about how you can text them and let them know what you're trying to do and ask them to encourage you. How can you form a group of like-minded people who can help one another towards those goals and those habits. I want to encourage us to make gathering with others a priority. And listen, that doesn't have to be in person. If I've learned anything over the last year, it's that there is just as much power and accountability and faith and encouragement online as there can be in person. So whether that group is able to be together in person or it's more of a text-based or a Zoom-based group, whatever that looks like, Make gathering together with others who will encourage and challenge you a priority. What we'll find is that over time, the, the habits will build up, the community will build up. We'll find that God is making us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I want to end us once again with the verse that we've been using the whole time from Zechariah 4.10. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. The Lord rejoices to see the work begin. So, so don't despise these small starts, because that's exactly where God is within you, within me, within each one of us. Thanks for listening. Make sure to visit our website, citruschurch.org. If you found refreshments in this message, share it with a friend. And hey, God loves you.